everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Bree, and joining us today, we are so excited. We finally have on the author, Jadisola James. Welcome to the podcast, ma'am. Tell us how you're doing and how your 2021's going. It's going, it's going. Thank you for having me, first of all. I am so excited to be here. And I have to say, I love your dynamic on the podcast. I've been listening since the beginning. Oh, God, in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Bless you. Thank you you for sticking around. Right? (laughs) Well, you you know what drew me in? I have to say, it's your dynamic. It's your vibe. Like, I really feel when I'm listening, like I'm in the room with two best friends or sisters, you know, who are just having a chat with an author they really love. So, you know, it didn't it didn't feel contrived or anything like that. It just feels really natural and really cool. So I'm happy to hang out with y'all today. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for hanging out with the knitting circle. Right? <laughs> in our knitting circle. <laughs> so how's your 2021 going? Oh, it's going. It's going. Uh, we're all moving into our, what is this, second year? Second yeah. year of all that's going on in the world. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm trying to be productive and trying to stay optimistic and um, trying to find safe things to do outdoors. But, you know, in a way, it was, this year was easier than late last year because I think we've all found ways of adjusting to the situation that's mm-hmm going on outside and kind of forming new lives for ourselves. I don't like to say normal or not normal because I feel like that term is just very subjective, but I think we've all found ways to adjust to our new realities. So in that way, 2021 has been good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start off with some icebreakers. Sure. If you came with a warning label, what would it say? Approach with food. (laughs) I'm not a happy, hungry person. I'm not proud of it, but that's just how it is. (laughs) Approach with food. I've had people stick their heads in my office and been like, have you eaten? And I'm like, yes, I'm not going to bite you. And then they come in, they know it's safe. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. In your dear reader, in the beginning of Redeemed by His New York Cinderella, you mentioned you love Barbara Cartland novels. Can you share with us what you love about them and tell us one of your favorite titles? Oh, man. Dame Barbara. I'm just picturing (laughs) Mm -hmm. her in my head as I'm speaking. I actually have a picture of her tacked above my writing space on a bulletin board. She's so amazing. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. She's great. She's great. She's so fab and over the top. You know, kind of like Harlequin Presents. So I think it was. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had a teacher in middle school. I must have been in seventh grade, I think, sixth or seventh grade. And she had this huge collection of Barbara Cartland paperbacks. She had a little personal bookshelf right behind her desk. And I think she let me read them because they didn't have any sex in them. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> the first one that I really remember gripping my memory and I'll put it down as a favorite title although it has some problems that are of its time it's called The Magnificent Marriage um if you like google yes yes (laughs) (laughs) it's a very Barbara Cartland 
title. Um, it had a very typical cover. You know, there's a lady and a gentleman on the stern of a ship, and they're like staring out at God knows what on the horizon, and they look absolutely miserable. And she has like a parasol and she's holding it over her head. And the trope was ugly duckling. So the woman, she has a beautiful sister, of course, with the golden hair and the perfect pearly skin. Mm -hmm. And she has eczema all over her body. So her face, her hands, her arms, every part of her body that people can see. She has eczema and she looks like all scarred up. And of course she's unmarriageable because everyone without that perfect white silky skin is unmarriageable. So I won't go through the whole plot, but she ends up in Singapore and she falls in love there and her skin clears up because of the tropical climate. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's ridiculous. But oh, no. it's so good. <laughs> it is. <laughs> As I'm relaying the plot, I'm laughing because it's so ridiculous. Ridiculously brilliant, right? I know. It's the fantasy of it all. It's the fantasy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You have to read that with that in mind. And, you know, everyone can finally see she's as beautiful as her sister. And, of course, okay. she rides off into her happily ever after. But, y'all, the book is terrible in so many ways. Like... <laughs> Dame Barbara was very British and very of her time. So the way that the native Singaporeans are treated in the book is like super condescending. And even the hero's treatment of her, his name is Maximus, by the way. Okay, I mean, Maximus. that just sounds Perfect. like. Yeah, you know, I can't so even make the top. name. I can't. There, it's entirely possible I will use the name Maximus in a future Harlequin present. So I can't. I just can't. as a throwback to. Uh... Right. Yeah, Sarah and I are going to be reading it, and listeners of the podcast are going to be like, "We know why she chose Maximus." (laughs) I feel so seen though, because as somebody that lives with eczema, I'm like, "So do I need to go to Singapore to not have a break?" You know, it's so funny because um, my son has eczema, but when we're over, like in the Middle East or in Africa, it completely clears up. There's just something about the air over there. I don't know if the humidity is so much, I think it just allows more moisture in the skin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's just better. And I, I've heard friends say that, like I'm, I'm, um, I'm of Nigerian extraction. So I have a lot of friends and family who say their skin looks so beautiful over there. But when they come over to North America where it's like cold and you have winters and it mm-hmm. just gets dry, that their skin really suffers. So I don't know. Maybe she was onto something quite scientific. Dame Barbara was ahead of her right? time. Way ahead of her time, yeah. Right? Okay. Dame so- Barbara with the dermatology. <laughs> yes. Okay, before Sarah goes on to the next one, since we're talking about Dame Barbara. Yes. You also, like I was reading on, like, I think you know, the right for Harlequin. You also are a collector of, like, vintage romance paperbacks which sarah and i are avid ebay and thrift books users so (laughs) tell us about that can you talk about that i have hundreds okay so i split my collection into two categories so they're ya Mm -hmm. and the ya ones i collect are mostly from the 50s and 60s 
So you've got like girls like in the circle skirts, like with the bubble hairstyles, like with the boy in the letterman's jacket on the cover. And they all have names like Jane and Shelly and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Joan and, you know, this and that. So those are on one side. And I just think it's so interesting to see these teenage love stories play out on a 1950s stage. Mm-hmm. But also they're really ironic because, you know, the 50s and the 60s, they were not that pure. Like there's drug, sex and rock and roll going on behind the scenes. But to read these books, you would have no idea. You'd think and you're in like happy days or leave it or to be. Leave it to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very leave it to be. I mean, people are actually saying like gosh and golly in the book. And the, the oh my God. There was one that I read where there was a bad boy called Andy and he says hell. And it's like a big thing. Like that's a, scandalous the plot yeah it was it was I, I clutched my pearls because you know I was in the moment and I'm just like <gasps> so I just I just find them delightfully cheesy and <laughs> and then on the other side there's vintage I don't collect them with any rhyme or reason just whatever mm-hmm. catches my eye I buy Vintage Harlequins. And then, of course, Barbara Cartland. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her books have been released all over the world. So I find it fascinating to see what the different covers look like on the different editions. And they're always really cheap. You know, they're Australian versions and UK versions and US versions. So I have a lot of ex-library books that pop up in Mm -hmm. eBay lots and, you know, things like that. I just enjoy having them. There's something very satisfying about seeing them all lined up on the shelf behind you. Yeah, there there really is. I, I have a few, well, what I consider to be quite old Harlequins from the 50s. And they're just a delight to look at, like the covers and, you know, it to see how much it's changed. That's the one big thing is how much romance covers have changed. Yeah, I like seeing the change and I love seeing, and this is going to be really weird, but I bought some the other day, and when the pages start to turn colors, I know I love it. Yes, <laughs> you got them with the yellow edges, and they're wonderful. What was your first job ever? My first job was in a library. Awesome. Oh. <laughs> so I um, I was a page in a public library, and essentially, pages just put the books away and mm-hmm. the newspapers and magazines. And I'd often stand in the stacks reading them most of the time. So it did not help my voracious romance <laughs> reading habit at all. And, you know, I had no teachers banning me from the books with the sex in them. So, you know, I expanded my palate for that job. <laughs> it's like spending your paycheck at the store before you get it home, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What's one of the best purchases you've treated yourself to this year? A mechanical keyboard. Ooh. So it's super loud. It sounds like a typewriter on steroids. And I love it. I love it. It's just so satisfying. Like you sit there and you're banging out the words and it's just like click, 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 click. It's so good. I recommend it highly. Ebook, audiobook, or physical copy? What's your preferred reading method? Mm, I would say... In an ideal situation, physical, but I read ebooks the most. They just fit with my lifestyle better. Mm -hmm. I uh, read on my phone quite a bit with the Kindle app or the Nook app and the book app. And 
it just gives me a way to own a ton of books that's not taking up precious space. We read that one of your hobbies is knitting. What are some of your favorite things to knit? I would say, hands down, baby blankets. Okay. I like the, there's always a baby shower coming up somewhere for somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And I like them because they're small, they're personal. And even if the pattern is really intricate or difficult, you generally can finish them before you get bored because they're tiny. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they display like stitch work really nicely. And yes, because the pattern is usually really repetitive. So I can do it like with my kids running around or watching TV or listening to a podcast. Once you master the pattern, you don't really have to pay as much attention. It's true. I I have friends, like I'm an, I'm an avid knitter. Um, Socks are my go-to. I'm have like 40 pairs of hand knit socks, (laughs) but um, I have friends who will knit at the movies. Like we'll go to the movie theater and knit because you don't have to pay attention. You know, you can, once you get the feel of it, but uh, my aunt does, she was doing baby blankets, but now she actually does them for cats and dogs and she donates them to the shelters. Oh, I love that. So the animals that come in get a nice blanket. So anyone out there who's listening, who wants to do a charity thing, (laughs) that's one option. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I've never thought of that at all. I've done them for hospitals, like for neonatal as needed, but I've never done them for a shelter. I didn't know shelters took blankets for cats and dogs. Yep. Oh, wow. So we talked about Dame Barbara Cartland, but we we love hearing romance origin stories. So was, was she your introduction to reading romance or how did that happen? I think so. So her and a little before her, um, I think my origin story is similar to so many you've had on here, like the relative who sort of passes on Mm -hmm. romance to to a child or or to a niece or whatever. So I have an aunt that lives in Lagos and she owns a bookstore there and she used to come every summer for this huge book expo in Atlanta. So she'd fly out of New York to go back to Lagos and she'd give me galleys of all the upcoming titles she saw at the fair that she was going to order for her store. So she would leave me with just piles of books. And um, most of the, a lot of them were romance. And she also loved Harlequin Presents mm-hmm. in uh, Nigeria. She would buy a ton of them for the flight over to the U.S. In Nigeria, they're Mills and Boone Modern. Yep. So she'd buy like a huge stack of them just to read on the flight. And then when she got here to the state, she'd replace them with new ones and give me all the ones she had already read. So <laughs> that was kind of my introduction to, to romance reading and how I got hooked in on that. So, and then combined with my library job, like there was no hope for me. It, it was yeah. <laughs> I read everything. I read inspirational. I read Everything from inspirational all the way up to Jackie Collins and Daniel Steele, those really soapy, soapy, epic yep. romance novels. So I love it. I, I just got my first, well, my second Danielle Steele recently. Oh gosh, I think it's called like Complications or something. I don't know. It's like set in Paris, there's a hotel on the cover, something like that. And I'm bracing myself because I feel like I'm going to get so sucked in and be hooked. On you something will. that I wasn't expecting. Yep. <laughs> you will. You will ignore your family. I, think <laughs> <it's>... <laughs> I mean, she's such a big name, and like, 
we hear a lot of like people in the romance community now that are like that have never read her before and they're yes. like questioning like is she romance and I'm like I think as she's gotten older she's probably just like exploring these different genres but I don't know I'm like there's something about those big names that I'm like I feel like I have to do myself a service and actually read some of these like OG books they're mm-hmm. so worth it they're so worth it and you know I the is are they romance question is something I consider a lot. I consider them epics with heavy romantic elements. Okay. Okay. There's not always a happy ending that ends with, you know, uh, two people together, but I think there's always a resolution, you know, a place of growth and you know, that in itself is a kind of happy ending. Yeah. But- mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't call them romance in the traditional sense, I guess. But whatever they are, they're wonderful. <laughs> At the end of the day. I yes. mean, the lady is Danielle fucking Steele. So she really is. She right? has I to bow. know what she's doing. <laughs> I bow. I bow. And, you know, I, I love books from that era, too, because if you flip them over and look on the back, you see the authors with, like, this big, dramatic hair and, like, yeah. up. <laughs> And they're like lounging on a chaise, like in a, you know, it's it's just so over. It's ridiculous. It's very it's like dynasty, dynasty, isn't it? Like from the nineteen, like dynasty era. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's, it's it's about as subtle as a train. Like you got the lashes and the, and I'm just like, oh my god, I want a photo shoot like that. So yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> We need you to do yeah. it. Please do it. Please. Those old school glamour shots. Yeah. Like I'm gonna bring it back. I'm gonna Vaseline on the lens and everything. I'm gonna bring it yeah. back. <laughs> the romance authors of back in the day were romanticizing their life, okay? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Predecessors to today's Instagram. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's celebrity authorship and yep. how much bigger of a celebrity author can you be than like Danielle Steele or Barbara mm-hmm. Cartland or Jackie Collins? Like mm-hmm. I'm just imagining them drenched in Shalimar, like, you know, just <laughs> walking around and saying, hello, darling, you know, just yeah. to, it's just, it's amazing. And then now here's I'm me the- like in my yoga pants trying to finish my edit. <laughs> yeah. Living that 2021 <laughs> life. Right. <laughs> Now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I know I have one on my shelf. I don't know who the author is. I'm going to post it in our Instagram stories. Like as soon as we get off of it, she took a photo and she's like petting her white cat. Like she took a picture with her cat. Of course. <laughs> and I just remember That's being like, right? <laughs> of course. Of course. That is perfectly expected. What else would you have? Maybe a pug. Right. <laughs> but... What else would you have? <laughs> I always think about those books, whether it's just the author's photo on the back, like even Nora Roberts, right? Because yes. like you go into the bookstore and you pick it up and they know you don't need to know what this is about. You're just going to buy it. So <laughs> I, noticed, I noticed that too, especially when I worked in the library or the bookstores, mm-hmm. no synopsis, no, no summary, nothing. Just mm-hmm. Nora Roberts in living color on the back of the book. <laughs> The back of the book. <laughs> yeah, it's hardcore. It's hardcore. Right? I love it. I respect that. That's where I'm trying to get to. 
Right? Yeah. That's the, the end goal. <laughs> exactly. Just just my face. You know? Like, oh, well, Nora done put something else out. Let's get it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Just With my Persian cat on my lap and my rhinestones. <laughs> goals. Knitting a baby blanket, okay? Yeah. For the cat. For the cat. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Best author life. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh my goodness. We learned from uh from reading your I Got the Call article on Harlequin's website that you have the coolest job ever, an academic librarian. Was becoming a librarian always a dream of yours and what inspired the choice to work in the academic world? You know, I think it was. After I got that first job in the library, I just never considered working anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I was a bookseller for a while at Borders. Long live Borders. I know. Moment (laughs) of silence for Borders. But I went right back to libraries after, after college. And I started out in public libraries as an assistant teen librarian. And I was in charge of ordering teen romances. <laughs> so I grew their collection ex- hugely. But um, then I got married and I moved to Qatar in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And their public library hadn't opened yet. And um, so I got a job in an American university there instead. And that started the academic library career. When I finally did get around to going to library school, I stayed in academic libraries because I, I think I just love the variety of what I do. I help faculty members with research. I help students. I get to interact with what's going on on campus. And also as a writer, it's so useful because I get to do my own research. I have access to all these databases and collections and, you know, oh, yeah. the underground network of librarians that can help you find anything you're looking for. And I just love being surrounded by knowledge and being able to teach other people how to find things. Okay. Two questions. So first, what did you think about Qatar? Cause I, I spent like a week, I think maybe two mm-hmm. weeks in Doha. Yes. Um, and I think, the de- desert cities are so gorgeous. I mean, I think that's yeah. why I like I I'm so hooked on presents now because every now and again you'll get like a shake romance set yes, in the Middle the East. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the mall, I mean the, they had a mall there that was huge and it was so beautiful. I think I can't even remember what it was called. Was it Bellagio? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there was like water running through the middle of it. Yes. And the ceilings there's were painted. A, there's a Venetian canal that runs through the middle of the mall. Through the mall, wow. through the middle of the mall, yes. And secondly, so at the time that you were doing like the teen librarianship and you were getting there, like like what were the big YA romances mm-hmm. at the time that you were work- that you were bringing in? Awesome. So first question as to Qatar, I absolutely adored living in Qatar. I miss it so much. Um, there's such a diversity of people that live there. You see people literally from every corner of the earth and so many different languages and cultures just all together in this beautiful space. And there's a real interest and passion for art architecture. And you have all these buildings and these really cool futuristic shapes just popping up out of the sand as 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 the city develops 
But then you also have this dedication to the past and all these really cool cultural heritage um, museums and sites and art installations and so many beautiful things. So that's my plug for Qatar. If you mm-hmm. can visit, please do. And as the teen librarianship, I worked in a branch in the Bronx. So we had a lot of teens that were children of immigrants. We had a lot of Black American teens. So the collection reflected that. And a lot of what I bought for teen romance was actually Harlequin, their Kamani True line. Okay. Oh, yeah. They had a, they the had a teen line. imprint. Yes. Yeah. And those books were really good. I was I I think of them as Sweet Valley High, but way more diverse. Yeah. So they had that vibe to them. Yeah. <laughs> so I bought a lot of that, and they were really popular. Uh, Urban Lit was also really popular at that time, kind of like the early thousands. It, it was it was really at like a height and a peak then, and they were coming out so so quickly and people they were flying off the shelves we couldn't keep them on the shelves so those were two things that I bought a lot of and um, I had a really good I had a really good time just um, getting the kids involved and asking them what they wanted to read and um, it was a great experience okay because I was going to ask did you just was it trial and error you just ordered Mm -hmm. some books and okay yeah this one we can't keep on the shelves and Mm -hmm. this one's here all the time but then okay so you did actually ask them like hey what are you looking for I think that's oh yeah I I had a I had a working focus group um, and they gave me feedback on what was there that they liked what was there that they didn't like what they wanted um I was fortunate enough to have a really cool and open-minded supervisor who pretty much would buy anything so um and we didn't have parents coming in to complain about what you know their kids were reading or whatever so we really it 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 was it was a collection that was curated by the high schoolers in the community which I really liked yeah and yeah they they got a they got a lot of input into into what the collection was made of and then of course I had the classics I would pick up the summer reading lists every year from the local schools and also ask the teachers in the area what were on their book list and what they wanted the kids to read so I made sure we had a few copies of each of those so students could come in and check them out from the library and not have to buy them okay, okay so what were what's on the summer reading list for kids in the Bronx <laughs> I have to know. Probably a lot of the classics that you would recognize. Let me see. To Kill a Mockingbird was always on it. Mm -hmm. Um, Catcher in the Rye was always on it. I hate Catcher in the Rye so much. (laughs) I had so much resentment every time. He's just such a whiny. Anyway, stop. Yes. This podcast. I haven't read it. My (laughs) Memphis City School high school education, I did not read any of the required reading that people talk about. I'm like, what do you mean you read this? We literally read whatever the book is on the Greek gods. And then the next thing I remember was like 12th grade reading Beowulf. Nothing in between. (laughs) So... Yes, I missed no, out, but I I one. mean, I saw a Twitter thread recently that was like, why are we having kids read The Catcher in the Rye? <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> He's an entitled little, you know what, don't. 
I literally could spend the next 20 minutes ranting about Catcher in the Rye. So I, but I'm not <laughs> going to do that. I'm not going to choose violence today. Yes. Um, and as a librarian, she's yes. not going to say, don't check out the book. I do not censor. I yeah. do not censor. Nope. If you want to check out Catcher in the Rye, I will check it out to you. I may be silently judging you, but <laughs> I will give it to you with a smile and say, enjoy it. We'll see you in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or maybe not because you'll hate this book and return it right away. <laughs> I'm sorry for those, anyone out there who loves Catcher in the Rye. I can see its value in the literary canon. This is a strictly personal preference that I'm relaying. So what, it, what do you think it is about it that it's required reading for students? You know, I think it's because... Hmm. I think it's because it's supposed to be representative of that time period. Mm. And books are also, fictional books, especially those quote-unquote classics, are also supposed to be kind of snapshots of that time. So they're also tools for teaching history. Okay. Okay. And I think that's where a lot of modern criticism of those old book lists come in because they're like okay whose history are you teaching and what history are you ignoring yeah right yeah so while I'm all for the classics I'm also for balance Mm -hmm. you know if, if you're if you're reading Salinger and um all, all, all of these other books that have been on the list for years, you know, let's balance them with other narratives and other voices that might not have been as prolific in, in past iterations of all this curriculum. So. I guess my, because I'm, I'm an aspiring history teacher, so I don't think Ooh. I'll ever like have, you know, but I guess my question is at what point does the classic, the reading list change mm-hmm. you know like when my my kids are my oldest two are sixth graders now and I'm like when they reach high school are they still going to be reading these books that have been on this list since me and my friends were in school and mm-hmm. even before us when does what's good enough to be on the required reading list change yeah. you're right you're absolutely right and I, I feel for educators too because History is just so vast and there's just so much. Mm -hmm. When you get to college, you're able to take just a little bit of history and explore it in depth. But just having the job of teaching what spans over centuries in the space of a school year and, you know, letting students walk away with something from that it's it's daunting to me it's absolutely daunting it's just like people who write textbooks I, I just it's a lot <laughs> yeah it's a lot that job <laughs> yeah. okay yeah. as a graduate student your focus has been on the history of publishing which I think is so cool Sarah and I were literally just talking about I wonder if there's anything academically that happens with romance. Can you talk about where the idea derived from and how the research is going? Absolutely. So in answer to your question, I will first say, yes, there are folks who concentrate on the history of romance and romance and women's fiction specifically in their research. Um, If you want names, I'll email them to you. I'll take up time with them now. 
But I guess the short version is that my focus as a graduate student, um, I'm a student of history, and my focus has been on the history of women's publishing. Oh my gosh, this is just so cool. Okay, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a personal interest, as you may have guessed. I'm interested not only in the books and how they came to be. And you know, they weren't always books. It started off very much as periodical history. Mm-hmm. They were published as serial stories in newspapers. They were published in little pamphlets that women could carry on to the train or read at lunch at work. And they were uh, marketed mostly towards like middle to upper class people and working girls you know there was a whole like genre of romance literature that focused on factory girls like girls who worked in factories and there was a whole like other genre that focused specifically on maids who marry rich men so those tropes have been there since the beginning of time and you know it's it's so cool like just seeing how the patterns repeat themselves And in my research, I'm interested not only in the books and the stories and how they came to be, but how the market for romance writing was created by publishers and the more organic bits of how it came to be. And I'm interested in what women really have been drawn to over the years and what they connect with and the relationship between these authors. And I chose to focus on female authors just because that was whom I was most interested in and their audiences and also their relationships with their publishers, uh, matters of celebrity authorship, which, you know, we talked a little bit about already Mm -hmm. and also author branding. There's just so much fascinating history of these extraordinary stories there. One of the things that I like to collect we'll just call it what it is is uh, (laughs) I love buying the old gothic romances like Phyllis Whitney's and Victoria Holtz off of eBay and it kind of started with this fascination with what was it about these books that women in that time period they liked you know for the 60s I'm like okay like Vietnam was going on like maybe Mm -hmm. they just needed an escape, which you see this heroine on the cover, like leaving, you know, running away from this house. And I'm like, is that how these women were feeling? Like, I need this escape from everything that's going on. I think that that's just so fascinating. So when you have a day when you're researching, like, how did the research start? Are you getting on the computer and like looking up old publishers or does it start Mm -hmm. with a book? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So research, I think, always starts with an understanding of what you want to research, which is kind of strange. But, you know, I I always tell my students, start with a list of questions. Um, Ask yourself why you're so interested in the subject. What are the elements of the subject that you're interested in? And start from there and just do some background reading. You know, just do a general Google search, read some articles, take a look on Google Scholar and see what other scholars have been writing about the subject and then try to identify that one piece or those, you know, little pieces of of that subject that hold the greatest interest for you. 
and then go on from there. Looking for evidence in uh, with primary sources, you know, I've looked through magazines and looked at book advertisements. I've looked at letters between women who were sending each other serialized stories and saying, oh my God, you've got to read this. I was swept away by this because of this and that and the other thing. I've read newspaper articles that blamed bad behavior of teenage girls on these sensational romance novels that they were reading. And (laughs) it's, there's, there's just so, there's just so much and um, it's ephemeral, but you know, it's been preserved so well by librarians and archivists and uh, scholars all over the country. And it really, it's a way, it's a way of, um, sharing history by kind of constructing your own timelines and just getting a glimpse into the lives of people who lived in the past. And even the authors themselves, like reading about their lives, reading their interviews. It's funny, there's this one author who wrote really sensationalist women's, women's fiction in the 19th century. And it's funny because each interview of hers kind of varies. Like in one, she'll say she's 35, and in one, she'll say she's 27, and then in one, she's married, and in one, she's not, and in one, she's very coy about someone she's in a relationship with. But meanwhile, she was like a 52 years old and married to a lawyer. <laughs> I and love it. Nobody tells me what my life is going to be. Right, exactly. <laughs> right? So it's almost like she was trying to give her readers a version of herself that was as exciting and as romantic as someone in one of her stories. And this Mm -hmm. woman was writing in the 1800s. And then you pick up a Jackie Collins from like 1987. And there she is on the back, like with her hair, like feathered to the gods and, (laughs) you know, the lipstick and the rhinestone jacket. And just that presentation of 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 the author of themselves mm-hmm. um and author branding it, that's just fascinating to me and then now we moved into the age of social media where you can basically be whoever you want yeah on on social media and our publishers talk to us about things like um color and if you write for different lines you know you use different pen names and you have a different persona for for each line. I'm going to shut up now because I will just keep talking about this. (laughs) (laughs) We find it fascinating. I mean, we, Sarah and I are just kind of nerds. We'll talk Mm -hmm. about like, well, when did they stop putting the little, you know, like, especially like in the old categories, you'd have the little advertisement, like stuck in the middle of the book, like halfway through Yes, and you could like fill it out and pop it in the mail. Like, I'm yes. like we're always like, when did they stop doing that? Because we'd fill it out and put it back in the mail. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It felt so, it felt so intimate. Yes. You know me, I'm going to go buy this book and then you're going to have this thing in the middle of it so I can get more books and I'm going right. to fill it out and I'm going to put it in the mail it just felt like publishing was on to something once upon a time (laughs) book club culture you know they're creating and that's part of creating and refining your market you're bringing people together who all love the same thing for whatever reason and capitalizing on it i have a confession to make that is like peak geek moment so (laughs) when i was in college i actually filled out 
one of those like postcards <laughs> or those old you books. You took one for the team. Video. Thank I you. Because I've been wanting to do it. I did. I, I wanted to see what would happen. And I didn't hear anything back. So that was <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> The CEO of some factory probably looked at it and was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> threw it in the trash. <laughs> No forwarding address. Of course not. Has writing always been a passion of yours? I think it always has. I remember as a kid just telling stories in my head. I wrote fan fiction for a really long time too. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a young adult and just always dreamed of writing something other people would want to read. So mm-hmm. that's a definite yes for me. Okay, what fan fiction were you writing? Yes. Oh gosh. Oh, I should pull up my old fan fiction account. <laughs> All right. I wrote for let me see. I wrote for the Princess Diaries fandom. Oh, I wrote cool. for the Little Women fandom. Really? Yes. I wrote We haven't heard that, Sarah. Women. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that was a it's, thing. It's there. It's there. Fanfiction.net. A small but dedicated following. Um, <laughs> I wrote for what else have I? Oh gosh. Now you're going to make me want to pull up my fanfiction.net account. We haven't heard the princess day. diaries either though. Mm-mm. Yeah. That, that is a fandom that, you know, um, if you've ever been on fanfiction.net, they have all of the fandoms listed like alphabetically, like book okay. by book or TV show or movie. So you see almost anything on there wow. and not all of them are super popular, but um, you know, there, there are people who write for anything. Like I've seen Gone with the Wind fan fiction. I'm like, oh. really, Sarah? You I have to write read it. You love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I, I have, <laughs> I have, um, I've seen it. So there, if there, if you want to read fan fiction for anything, it's probably there. So what do you think that your experience writing fan fiction, did it help you any, we want to know what your journey to becoming published was like, but you know, how did that experience do you think help shape you as a writer? Yeah. You know, I think what's cool about it is when you write fan fiction and you post it up, you're getting feedback from people around the world who are reading it and enjoying it and loving it and begging you to continue that story or or to continue that series. And that's really encouraging because if you're writing, especially as a young writer, and you're writing just for your just for yourself, that's one thing. But to have other people read it and know that they're enjoying it, that kind of pushes you to another level. So I think fan fiction did that, did that for me. Okay. Yeah. From what I've seen, you are like, it's so incredible because I think people forget. I I'll, I'll be honest. Like I did not know this was a thing until we started doing the podcast. Like these like pitch days of like, Hey, this person's going to be on Twitter doing pitches or accepting pitches. Um, So and you took part in that. So can you talk about doing that? I, I just feel like 
it's so it's such a vulnerable thing to do like mm-hmm. you're putting you know you're pitching your baby and hoping that someone says a yes so can you talk about that experience and then your journey to becoming published what was it like sure so I'll I'll fold the whole pitch bit into the overall journey just to kind of marry it all together but I've been writing for about 10 years fan fiction like I said and romance is actually pretty new for me I was dabbling and trying to break into literary fiction and Mm -hmm. short stories for a while. I actually did get one short piece published and I won a prize for it. But can I tell you, literary fiction has always felt like so much work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Props to people who do it and love it, but all the themes and the metaphor and the voice and illusion and Mm. going over every sentence over and over and over like it just it was exhausting you know I was trying to make all of my words like weighty and important and I don't know trying to be the next Chimamanda Adichie or whatever and it was just exhausting like it, it, it wasn't enjoyable but I think maybe because I was a lit major in college I had it fixed in my head that this was writing seriously. Mm-hmm. And I kind of fell into romance because a friend of mine, she stumbled across the Write for Harlequin Mentorship Contest. So it was a mentorship contest. I think they had one this year as well. The one I, I entered was last year and the prize was, was, there was a cash prize and also a chance to be mentored by Harlequin into your first book publication. And she was like, oh, my God, you read romance all the time. You have to do this. So I did. And it wasn't accepted. But what it did was it drew me into the world of romance writing. Mm -hmm. I joined the Write for Harlequin Facebook group. I got on Twitter. I connected with all these aspiring and established romance writers. And it was like someone flipped on a light. And I just sat there and I'm like, I can write what I like to read. Mm-hmm. Like, duh. Why am I not trying to write romance Where when 70% of what I read is romance and women's fiction? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I already know it from... I, I just don't understand why I never thought of writing romance before before this came. I, I don't... To this day, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, that's besides the point. So I wrote The Sweetest Charade for that contest. And it wasn't a struggle. It, it just flew off of my computer like it was writing itself. And mm-hmm. I was able to pour everything I loved about romance into it. You know, I had a really chivalrous hero and all this armchair travel to really beautiful places. And I got the parties and the food and this luxury train journey. And it was just really indulgent and, and wonderful. And like I said, I didn't win, but the night I finished the book and wrote the end, I sat at my computer and I just cried my eyes out because it it was the first Mm -hmm. time I had successfully finished like a full length novel. Yeah. And I had never done that before, not in 10 years of writing. And I didn't think I could successfully, you know, make it to the end of the novel. And then, you know, at that point I was like, you know, maybe I'm a writer after all, maybe I can do this. Maybe I was just, maybe I've just been trying to write the wrong kind of book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So even though it didn't win that contest, I knew I had something that I believe someone would want to publish. And I knew that I'd be able to do this again. I'd be able to write more. So I polished it up and I pitched it during Karina pitch. Stephanie liked it. I had also submitted it to Harlequin Romance. Um, okay. But Karina was the one that ended up buying it. Wow. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's not just a story about getting published, I think. It's a story about me finding where I was supposed to be mm-hmm. in the writing world. Yeah. Because it just, it, it just feels, it feels natural. It feels like what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And um, getting into Presents was similar there was a Twitter pitch event and, you know, by then I was an old hand. I'm like, oh yeah, another pitch event. And um, I entered with literally two minutes left. Oh and gosh. It just, <laughs> literally, it was, it was down to the wire. I think, you know, it was over at, I don't know, let's say 12 o'clock. I clicked, um, I, I, I tweeted at like 11.58. Like it literally was like down to the wire. Oh <laughs> It was wild. It would, and it, you know, it was just this half-baked idea that had been floating around in my head. So pre-lockdown, I'd gone to a conference and I was sitting in the dining room of my hotel and I noticed that the waiters just never asked for identification. They never ask you to prove you're in the room you're charging your food to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was just sitting there like listening to people like, oh yeah, 258 or oh yeah, 116. And I'm like, oh, that'd be a funny meet cute. Like, the scammers charging a huge meal to the most expensive room in the yeah. hotel. Where the guy <laughs> happens to be sitting in the room. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, I wonder if I could get away with that. Should I just charge my meal to the penthouse? But, you know, <laughs> yes. I, I'm not as ballsy as um, as Kitty was in, in my story. So I, I didn't. But I used it as a plot point. And I pitched it on Twitter. And when um, Nick Cause, she's my editor, when she liked it, I was like, there's no way. Like, I thought it was a joke. Like, I wrote the three chapters in, like, a week. And I sent it in. And I was fully expecting a no. Because I'm like, this is Harlequin Harlequin Presents. Penny Jordan writes for Harlequin Presents. These are the ones your aunt was, like, flying over from Nigeria with and giving to you. Yes. Those are... (laughs) Freaking Miranda Lee writes for Harlequin Presents. (laughs) They were... They they seemed to me... They literally seemed to me to be the old... Like, just think of any establishment that you've seen Mm -hmm. since you were a little kid. It's not even imposter syndrome. It was more like, this is Harlequin Presents. Like, I, I gassed myself up, but not that much. Like, you know? So when when they wanted to buy it, I was in utter, utter disbelief. But I'm obviously thrilled it happened. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still can't believe it sometimes. Like. It's it's just it's it's a marvel. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. One of your answers when asked what advice you'd offer to aspiring writers was to study the market you want to write for, like studying for school exams. For any aspi- aspiring writers who may be listening, can you talk about this? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important, especially in category 
when you're aspiring to be published is to read it and read it voraciously. Mm -hmm. Um, With Harlequin Presents, yes, I'd read Presents, but I'd read them as a high school student and in early college. I'm not going to date myself by saying how long ago that was, but it was a long time ago. And and, and the line has changed Mm -hmm. Um, elementally it's still the same, right? There's still the passion and the drama and the excitement that's at the heart of the series. But it, it what the editors have wanted want has changed. And it's important to make sure that you're up to date and you're reading what they're writing now and what they're publishing now. And don't just read it for the plot, but read as a writer, look at mm-hmm. what happens, look at when it happens and look at how it happens. Mm-hmm. I think category sometimes gets a bad rap for being limiting, but I actually think it's the opposite. I think it brings just huge crowds of readers from different backgrounds and different walks of life and different experiences together because you've got these tropes that happen over and over and over again that readers relate to and love for various Mm -hmm. reasons. And if you can weave gorgeous stories kind of around that center element in your own voice in in so many unique, and you know, in a a unique way and in a fresh way that is uniquely you, Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes for success, especially in, in category fiction. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we may be biased just because we love them so much, but I, before I can see the difference between like when I just, I read romance and then when I started reading category romance, when I began reading category, I really began to learn about tropes because the authors of category, it's like you, you do have like that limitation as far as length and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. all the fluff is kind of taken out of the book and you guys like just like masterfully get to the bare bones of, you know, the, there's so much like the trope, the characters, all of that is what keeps you turning the page, you know, like with, we're going to get into Kitty and Lawrence's story, but I mean, it's so intense the way that the story is told, you know, there is this, like, they already know each other element and there's this secret and Mm -hmm. there's, you know, this theme of trust and like, you're just turning the page. And it's, it's also like, but you know, she's going to wrap this up really quickly because it's only, you know, the the books no more than 200 and something pages. And it's just like, (laughs) yeah, it's just the the bare bones of, okay, here's a trope. They already know each other. Here we go. Let's get into the story. And all the fluff is taken out of it. So I don't know. It's really made me appreciate, I think, tropes a lot more. And when Mm -hmm. I get into a a bigger book, I'm like, girl, you didn't have to do this in 450 pages. Like you could have taken out, you could have taken out 100 pages. I got it. (laughs) Yeah. It's true. And I mean, you sacrifice so much. There's not really time to explore secondary characters and family dynamics as much as you would, you might like to do if you had more space. But then again, it's really special because you're hyper-focusing on this couple and on their story and on what has kept them from love in the past and how they're able to move past that. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're very, they're very special. They're a very special category, I think, of romance. Mm-hmm. So let's chat about the books. So prior to Redeemed by New York Cinderella, we already touched a little bit on the Swedish charade, but can you share with, share with us what the book is actually about? It, I know there's like some fake dating, there's some travel, but tell us about the, the story. Yes, so the Swedish charade... Um, is about, so it's a, it's a staged affair and it's set mostly during this really luxurious train journey that's done for social media clout. Mm-hmm. So our heroine is a social media influencer and our hero is a history professor. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> and he kind of needs a career reboot and he's, you know, up for tenure, but his students just find him really boring and his tendency to geek out, they find it really tiresome. And then the social media influencer, you know, on the surface, she um, seems very focused on superficial things and you know it's all about building her brand and this and that but you get to know the reason why indeed she's so she she's chosen this way of life it's you know it's a way for her to make money to take care of her family who's in dire straits and you know if you read the book you find out her backstory Mm -hmm. so it's seeing these people come together and seeing their misconceptions about each other sort of disappear as you go on through the novel and it's you know it's set on this backdrop of this you know really luxurious train journey but it's also an exploration into facades and you know what is beneath the facades when you start peeling the layers back mm-hmm. yeah. so it, it was it was a lot of fun to write and um it's very different from redeemed by his new york cinderella mm-hmm. um but it does share some it does share some elements especially the fake dating element which is one of my favorite tropes if you hadn't guessed mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you enjoy about writing about fake dating like what's your favorite thing about the fake dating trope i think it's the i think it's the varying ways in which the characters are successful at it. Some are better actors than others. (laughs) And (laughs) there's always that element of trying to convince the world that what you have is real. And there's always that place in the book where you as a reader are kind of wondering how much of this is real and how much of it is just putting it on for the benefit of whoever is watching. Mm -hmm. So there's that element too of kind of getting down to the truth and to the heart of the matter. So I think I like that. And it just leads to great capers. Yeah. Fake dating begets other tropes. Yeah, for sure. And it's one of those tropes that can be done like it can be in a a rom-com and it can be super hilarious or it can be in a dark romance. (laughs) It's just, it lends itself so well to whatever kind of book it is, I think. Exactly. I love it. It's just so good. So Redeemed by His New York Cinderella is your most recent release and your debut with Harlequin Presents. Congratulations. Yes, yes. Thank um, you. We've talked quite a bit about Presents, but for anyone who has not read a Presents or a modern novel, how would you describe the line to them? I would say they're very dramatic. Mm-hmm. They're sexy. 
they're lush with detail. Um, and I would also say they're very optimistic. Um, this, uh, Even though some of the elements in the storylines are a little bit dark, at the heart of it, the books are about redemption and they're about the healing power of love. You know, love grows between two people and it sort of just takes over and it pushes out whatever these characters have been holding close or whatever has been keeping them from love. And I just love that optimistic, triumphant tone that presents takes. The book is an intense fake dating romance between Kitty and Lawrence. Can you share how their story came to you? The setup for their story, the meet cute, we already talked At the hotel. a little bit about. Yep, scammer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love that that was based off a of real life experience, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, "She is not doing this." Yep, she's doing it. <laughs> and there he is. It, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I was good. But I would say the rest of the story just comes out of a desire to talk a little bit about the immigrant experience in the United States. So there's a little bit about that in there. And also there's a little bit about class and um, which of course is a huge theme in Harlequin Presents that comes up again and again. But, you know, the the twist is that, you know, you have someone who uh, came from a different country and was involved with a family and you know it ended badly so just putting all those elements in there were things that I was interested in and also I guess giving the Harlequin Presents readership uh, just some characters that they hadn't seen before yeah. so you know Kitty is uh, Ghanaian and um, she's 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 like I said an immigrant to the United States and Lawrence is also a man of color. So I just thought it would be really cool to write my debut about um, people who are close to my own background and my own experience. And I just love New York. So why not New York? So Kitty truly felt like Cinderella in the book, but she has a Robin Hood twist. And she even mentions Robin Hood in the book, which I thought is just brilliant what do you think it is about Cinderella's story that lends itself so well to romance novels and what did you enjoy about blending her story with remnants of Robin Hood's yes definitely the um the Robin Hood illusion was very very deliberate like I even put her in a green dress the dress is (laughs) just in case you want you know the theme to hit you over the head I was like yeah (laughs) not too much subtlety there But the Cinderella story just lends itself really well to romance novels because um, it's a story of strength. It's a story of triumph. It's a story of rising above circumstances. But I added the Robin Hood twist because I wanted a heroine who very much knows who she is and what her purpose is. And if she had never bumped into Lawrence that night, she would have been just fine. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, it's, um, she's, she's a strong, she was a strong heroine. She's a determined heroine, but she's not helpless. No. And her thinking 
of others above herself and her nodding, not wanting others to have the same experience that she grew up with, I think is at the core of her character. And, um, you know, learning to trust Lawrence while still staying true to herself and her beliefs and what she wanted out of life, I think is a huge part of the story. Yeah. I mean, speaking of trust, (laughs) trust Lawrence. (laughs) Trust is a huge part of Kitty and Lawrence's story. It's one of the themes in the story that had us on the edge of our seats while reading and kept us turning the page because you have to know how things are going to turn out. Mm -hmm. You, ma'am, I I I put on Twitter yesterday to you, I was like, we have to talk about Lawrence, okay? (laughs) Uh, So can you talk about writing secrets and trust? Because as the reader, you're in on something. And you're watching her, you know, it's almost like Lawrence wants her to, uh, unintentionally, he wants her to trust him a little bit. Like, you feel that with him. And she, like, she even says at one point, like, she's reminding herself, don't trust him. You can't trust him. He's one of them. But those walls begin begin to crumble. And you're, like, in on this secret the whole time. So talk (laughs) a little bit about the writing of that. Yeah, no, definitely. I I didn't want to hold the secret back. I think in 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 a in a book as short as that one, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be entirely fair. And um I think and I wanted the big reveal not to be about the secret, but how she reacts to it after having this intense experience and connection, you know, with this man that's so firmly tied to her past and who she is and the role he's had in in making her who she is. And I think one of the most important things about writing trust is that yes, trust is earned, but it trusting someone is also an act of faith. Because you can't read anybody's mind. You can you you can never really know anyone's intention. So getting to the place where you're able to lower those walls um, because, you know, you've connected to someone, you've fallen in love with someone, and you've decided that I'm going to let you in, you know, that's an, that's something, that's a decision that a character has to come to by themselves. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's part of the redemptive quality of romance as well, right? Because you have a character that starts in one place and ends in another. And it's about the evolution. It's about the growth. That, in a way, is more important than the secret that's hanging between them. The secret is just the catalyst that sort of gets them there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So let's get into some writing questions. Sure. Uh, early bird or night owl, what time of day do you feel most productive with writing? If you had asked me five years ago, I would say night owl, but... <laughs> I've since forced myself to wake up early and write and I get so much more done. The house is quiet. I brew a cup of tea and I just bang out the words. My brain is freshest in the morning. So I would say early bird. Are you a plotter or a pantser? Plotter. The thought of pantsing is absolutely terrifying. (laughs) I don't even, I don't want to try it. I just don't. I admire people who pants so much, Um, but I would say I'm a flexible plotter mm-hmm. um redeemed by his new york cinderella if you saw early iterations of that book you would just laugh your head off because there are so many plot points that 
just went off into outer space and didn't make it into the final draft. Thank God. Okay. Can we know one plot point that we'll never see the time of like the light of day? Can we hear it? Oh gosh. (laughs) Let's see. So some things that, 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 that popped up in previous iterations, um, Kitty actually goes to Ghana with Lawrence and she's part of one of his ad campaigns. Okay. Interesting. So that, that was that was a plot point that went nowhere. <laughs> um, in a very early version of the book, you actually see the senator, uh, Lawrence's father, and you know he comes in to do a bit of mustache twirling and mm-hmm. threatening of Kitty, but it was a little too dramatic, even for <laughs> yeah, <laughs> present that like. <laughs> Look, the book was intense enough. Like, I could not have handled that. No, (laughs) ma'am. Well, you know, the editorial note was that we want to keep our focus on the main characters, which is something that you hear a lot if you're writing category romance. So, Okay, I love that you shared that because... Oh, yeah. Because, like, the way that sometimes that the books read, you're waiting for that ball to drop yes and i admire so much that choice of i don't know if it's between you and the the editor or if it's you Mm -hmm. that's just like no this is their story we don't have to add that in it's Mm -hmm. already been intense enough so i literally like that you said that because i'm realizing how I think as readers, we're just like, oh man, the dad's going to show up and he's just going to yes. ruin everything. But exactly, wow. exactly. You know, initially it, and you know, I'll talk a little bit um, about this without spoiling the story, but initially the secret that we're all coming, that we're all um, talking about was supposed to come from the dad, but okay. it doesn't, it stays between the two of them. And mm-hmm. I think that ultimately um, the scene where she's confronted with learning the truth is more powerful because of that. Yeah. Because it's yeah. him. Yeah. For sure. If it's a project you've already been working on, do you reread your previous day's work? No, unless I need to for continuity. Okay. I'm very much a fast drafter. I, you know, I go right through. Um, and also I don't always write in order. I usually write the climax first and go write the first three chapters and then write the ending and then fill in everything. Interesting. But it works for me. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I'll tell you why. Cause you know, process. I tend to run out of steam by the end. Okay. And by the end, I'm so sick of the characters and their drama. I just want the book done. <laughs> <laughs> So I find that if I write the ending while my brain is still fresh and also the climax while my brain is still fresh, it's really, it, there's more punch and more power to it, even though okay. it may be edited to read differently later on. Yeah. It, That's it really is like you're, you're like filling in the blanks after that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And if you have your outline, it's easy to fill in the blanks. You just go by the scenes that you've already planned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and the book always like, still manages to surprise you. So yeah, yeah it's, it's like you, you've, you like started with the really important, impactful moments of the book. And now yes. you get to do like all the fun stuff in between. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. 
-hmm. Are there any necessities that you need around you while you're writing? A water, tea. That's about it. Just beverages. Oh, and candy to bribe my children with. There you to go. leave you alone. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Give mommy oh, like ten more minutes, mom. please. Yeah. <laughs> Do you set any daily writing goals? I used to, but that wasn't working out for me because if for some reason I couldn't meet the goal, I was beating myself up for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lucy Monroe, who might have mentioned this actually in her um, interview with y'all, she always says that instead of setting, setting daily writing goals, she notes down what she did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day. And that's something that I've taken for her that works really well. And also I try to set weekly writing goals to give okay. myself a little bit of flexibility. So mm-hmm. I like the weekly writing goals. Very little Me too. and yeah. <laughs> things happen. That's right. Things happen. And I should not beat myself up, you know, for having a life and other responsibilities. Yeah, so I was gonna ask, is- like, how are you because I mean you have a job, you're a mom, like mm-hmm. you, is that part of why like morning works best? Cause I'm, I'm sure by that you're exhausted at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. 100%, 100%. Wow. And it's really the only time of day that I can guarantee I'm not going to get any surprise waking up for water to go to the bathroom like that period yeah. between 5 and 7 a.m. I'm guaranteed uninterrupted work time. So Mm -hmm. it just works really well. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation online about being that girl and waking up and being productive at 5 in the morning and people Mm -hmm. are like, it doesn't work. You're just exhausted. And I'm like, man, look, the older you get, that's peaceful time. That is the time to get stuff done. Yes, yes. (laughs) And you know what? Honestly, at night after the kids are down, I don't want to write like I want to read or Mm -hmm. watch an episode of something or have a glass of wine like I don't I don't want to write I I want to unwind yeah yeah I want to allow myself that unwinding time yeah after nine that's like my Mary Tyler Moore episode (laughs) watching time (laughs) and then I am done yes yes Yes, I want to do something pleasurable until I can't keep my eyes open anymore. And then I can mm-hmm. yeah. so. um, Do you have any specific programs that you use to write? Um, I have used Plotter, which I which I found useful. Um, I write in Google Docs because I have lost too many words. <laughs> Microsoft <laughs> crashes too many. I don't want to think about them. It's very painful. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I use, I use Google docs and, um, that's about it. I do a lot of writing sprints. I find those really helpful either alone or with people. Okay. Um, they're great for concentrating and, oh, there is this app. It's called for the words. Okay. It's an online writing game and community. There's a paid version. Um, there's a free version as well. And essentially what it does is you write against a timer. And as you write, you're killing monsters. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's awesome. (laughs) So so if let's say 
your goal is, uh, I don't know, like a thousand words in 60 minutes, right? You're writing and the timer is going down and the monster's like getting bigger and bigger. And if you don't hit that word count, like within that time frame, then the monster doesn't die and you do. So it's, it's, it's gamified. It's, it's fun. It's silly, that is so cool. That's awesome. It really helped me in, increase my speed. Uh, you find yourself stumped on a scene. Who do you call or what do you do? Um, I have a community of writers uh, just on Instagram, WhatsApp. I basically just text them and whine and complain. And... <laughs> I get very dramatic. I talk about what a terrible writer I am. And no. Give up. And, you know, I exhaust myself doing that. And either I skip to another scene um, and work on that instead or I um, try doing what's called uh, sandboxing. If I'm stuck, I just open up a fresh document and okay. start with those characters in a new scene, in a new document, without the rest of the story looking at me judgmentally. And, you know, I just play around with them. And usually that that gets me unstuck. If it's really bad, sometimes I'll put the story aside for a week or so and then go okay. back to it. We've never heard that. I love that idea. Maybe just you need a, a, a fresh page and then mm -hmm. put them somewhere else. Yes. Mm -hmm. It absolutely helps. And just tell yourself you're just free writing a scene. Yeah. yeah. This has no connection to the story. I'm just having mm -hmm. fun with the characters. And sometimes even if what you write doesn't make it in the book, you would have come away with, with some valuable insight about those characters. Mm -hmm. So that Interesting. And I love having that group of people that you can go to because, I mean, writing seems a lot like reading. It's so solitary, mm -hmm, but you need is. that group of people. I mean, even as readers, I can just message Sarah and be like, this scene was so intense. I have to talk about it. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. I love it. All right. Let's do some round out questions. Sure. What is one book you wish you could read again for the first time? I hate this question because I have so <laughs> many. You have no idea, y'all. This is so hard. I'm trying to think. Okay. Uh, there's a book by an author called Ava Rice. Okay. Um, and it's called... I'm going to look it up real quick because I want to make sure I get the title. She's the daughter of Tim Rice, actually, um, who's like this big time musician in, um, in the UK. And the book is called The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets. Oh, okay. okay. Yes. So it's set um, in 1950s in the UK and it's sort of post-World War II and it's just so absolutely delightful. So you have post-war London and it's sort of spinning towards the next decade's cultural revolution and it's um it's romantic it's a coming of age story so there is a romance in the book but uh the setting and the language are just so evocative and just so romantic in and of themselves mm -hmm. and it's just very vibrant and funny and it gives you all this historical detail. And again, here's the historian here. It gives you all this historical detail, but it just integrates it into the story so well. Yeah. So yeah. 
yeah, we don't want a brain dump (laughs) in historical fiction. Just just put it in there flawlessly and gracefully. That's right. Yeah. Have you ever closed a book and just been like, that was beautifully written? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. And I think like the history part is the part that really just sucks you in. But sometimes every now and again, you'll read one and you're like, okay, I got it enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What's a romance you've read within the past few years that reminded you why you love the genre? (laughs) I don't want to admit this. Oh my God. Please do. (laughs) You're among friends here. (laughs) Now I'm intrigued. What is it gonna be? <laughs> it's so embarrassing. So this summer I reread the Sweet Valley High series. That's what oh, yes. I'm gonna that say. is Sarah's like first love. <laughs> I'm rereading the Babysitters Club right now, so there is no judgment here. None. None. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad, but it's so good. Right. <laughs> Last oh, Christmas, I just needed something. And I ended up just rereading The Evil Twin, the 100th book. Oh my God. And I'm like, this is just the soap opera, the drama, the, you know, like. <laughs> I feel like it was, it was Harlequin Desire before, you know. <laughs> no, it really was, though. It really yep. was. Mm-hmm. So, okay, as long as I'm confessing today. So I have the entire series in boxes in my garage. And we're in the middle of a move. So we're with my parents for a couple of months while we're in transition. So I was looking through my books, seeing what I was taking, what I was not. And I just opened the Sweet Valley High box and Double Love was right on the top. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks. So yes, that reminds me of why I love the genre because it just goes for it. Because why not? (laughs) It does. It really does. Oh <laughs> you know what? That's what I love about romance. It's so unapologetic. Yep. Like, write whatever the hell you want. I will read it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you think it, I mean, for anyone, I didn't grow, I didn't read Babysitter's Club. I did not read Sweet Valley High, but <laughs> those are like big books in the world of like romance and young adult romance and, and babysitters club is just it, they're so iconic but for anyone that's like a grown woman now that's like okay my best friend is obsessed with sea valley high so i'm going to read it what advice would you give to them for reading this older iconic series have no expectations mm-hmm. have an open mind Right? You don't you don't buy cotton candy and eat it thinking about how healthy you want to eat. No, you <laughs> eat it because it's cotton candy and it's damn good. Yeah. So these books are cotton candy. So yep. approach them that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Who was your teenage celebrity crush? Denzel Washington. I liked older men. Love it, yes. (laughs) I I saw him in Devil in a Blue Dress, and that was it. He was young in that film. I'll I'll give him that. But you know, now he just looks like everyone's disapproving uncle. So the the crush has waned over the years. (laughs) As he actually is getting older. Yes. Yes. Uh, If you could give teenage you a message, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good one. Embrace what you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like every preteen and teenager has to hear that. 
Agreed. My son's 11 and he's obsessed with like Godzilla and he was on some, you know, he doesn't know life without social media and the internet. So he was on some like gamer chat room and kids were like being mean to him because you like Godzilla. And I'm like, dude, Godzilla has been around. Like you've watched black and white movies with Godzilla. He's Mm -hmm. still making movies now. Like people are rich off of Godzilla embrace the fact that you enjoy the this this fandom exactly exactly and i i wish teens realize that you know building your identity should be centered it should be centered around what you enjoy not some aspirational aesthetic that you have in your head mm-hmm. yep i wish more of them knew that so if any teens are listening today <laughs> embrace what you love <laughs> Yes. absolutely and read sweet valley high that's right <laughs> and harlequin presents just say yes. you graduate from one to the other right i don't think moms these days are like you don't have to sneak it girl just take it just, just take it. it that's right yeah. yep just read it name one film you will never stop watching uh, Sabrina, the Audrey Hepburn version. Nice. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. What is one hill you will wholeheartedly die on? Holden Caulfield sucks. The <laughs> is a terrible book. I will say it anywhere. To anybody. <laughs> You've heard it here, folks. I think we may know this, but what is one of your favorite romance tropes to read? You know what? I'm going to give you a new one that's a little bit controversial. I love love triangles. Really? Really? I love that trope. Maybe it was all just Sweet Valley High. Elaborate. Elaborate. (laughs) I don't know. There's just something so exciting about, you know, one person torn between two others. It's... It, it's my formative years. Mm-hmm. The Sweet Valley High, the Danielle Steele, like, <laughs> there's just something so exciting about, you know, a heroine with two men in love with her and gasp, which one will she pick? And I always wanted her to go for the rich guy. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you read 10 years later, did you read the, the Sweet Valley High book that was like them as adults? Uh, yes, I did. I, okay, so you were as disappointed with it as I was. All right, don't say anymore. I don't. I don't remember any of it. You know. I'm, I just remember going, "What?" <laughs> I do remember that. I remember my yeah. reaction. But I'm like Elizabeth and Bruce. What? <laughs> I was so angry. I know. <laughs> we don't need the 10 years later we don't yeah, no. need it <laughs> i'm like you know and it just goes to show you that you know all these you know fan fiction is great because you can kind of create the world that you want in your head yes. but when they put it out there for mass consumption yes you know leave the series where it is i don't want to read after the ending of it do you know what yes. i mean but it was so disrespect. Like I felt genuinely disrespected <laughs> by the series. Like, I, yeah, I knew it wasn't a personal insult to me, <laughs> but I, I took it very personally. I'll just like, put it that way. I invested my. Well, the way I think about it, if you've ever seen the show How I Met Your Mother, I loved yes. that show. My husband and I watched it religiously. The final <laughs> episode ruined everything for me. <gasps> oh, everything oh. for me. And I refuse to rewatch it now in syndication. Refuse. <laughs> and it's like, I invested 
time of I my did, life. I seven years in this show. <laughs> Listen, I that ending. You know how, like, with the Jane Austen sequels and rewrites, they call them Jane Austen variations. Mm-hmm. I feel like they should have called it a Sweet Valley High variation. Like, Agreed. I feel that would have. Yep. You know, agree some of the rage that I felt. But yep. Yeah. Yep. In my head, it never happened. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Is there a category romance series you wish never went away? Oh gosh. Harlequin presents. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's been here since way before I was. And yep. you know, I I hope I hope the legacy continues. And you know oh. what I love about it is that the editorial team is making um a real effort to keep the series fresh while still um, utilizing what people love most about the series. So I really respect Harlequin mm-hmm. for, for their work on that end. Mm-hmm. So tough love. What's been one of the toughest pieces of advice you've ever been given? It's not going to sound harsh when it comes out, but in context at the time it was, um, it, it, it was be grateful and um, I think especially, you know, in recent years when so much has been going on and, you know, people have so many hardships on an individual level, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult sometimes just to look at what I do have mm-hmm. and how appreciative I am of the fact that it is there and, and that I have it. Contentment is difficult sometimes and uh, being grateful is difficult sometimes, but just keeping my eyes on the good mm-hmm. and hoping, praying, working towards the bad to become better is something that I've been working on definitely for for the past few years. And writing-wise... I love that. Mm-hmm. writing wise a tough piece of advice is honestly like once your book is in the world it's not about you it's like no you wrote yours. it yeah you wrote it that's about it mm-hmm. yeah. like anyone who doesn't like your book it's not a personal attack it's, yep like i always say there are thousands of people who like catcher in the rye <laughs> <laughs> bringing it back around just that's saying right. I mean, it's a classic. It's on required reading. So somebody somewhere <laughs> thinks it's important, you guys. One person thought it was important one time, and now we're all suffering for it. <laughs> yes, right? Yes, Sarah, yes. <laughs> um, 15 years from now, you're writing your memoir. What's the title? Glamour Girl. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Sounds very Harlequin Presents writer. And then your picture on the back, you know, with your cat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I told you I'm bringing it back. Bringing right? It back. <laughs> now and then, knowing what you know now, what advice would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of your writing career? Write what you love to read. Mm-hmm. It'll be so much easier. Mm-hmm. Live, Leave the literary giant books to the literary giants Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah i have to be in a and this is 
no shade. I've I have read and loved some literary fiction books. Oh, same here. But same here. I, I adore them. Have to be in a mood for those. Like I yep. tell my girlfriends all the time yeah. that read them all the time. I'm like, I don't I don't know how you do it. It's yeah. like, oh, it's so beautiful and tragic. And I'm like, I don't want to read tragic right now. <laughs> all the time, yeah. <laughs> right. I don't see how. <laughs> Well, you you know, I I love literary fiction. I read it copiously. I love um psychological dramas, especially like housewife psychological dramas. Mm-hmm. Ooh, those get me. Yes, but I I can't write them. Maybe one day I'll be able to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, writing evolves just like anything else. But right now, it, it's romance, and 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 I love it. And I think especially at the beginning of a writing career where you're a young writer and you're new to publishing and you're navigating um, those waters. I think writing what flows out of your pen naturally and finding that place for yourself is hugely important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Can you share with us what's coming up next from you? Yes. So um, I am working on uh, edits for, a new Harlequin Presents. Okay. Uh, that's out Yay. next year. <laughs> that's due out next year. Um, it's exciting um, because it's set in Nigeria, which, you know, I'm from, and also the Seychelles, which is also also in, uh, in Africa. And it's called The Royal Baby He Must Claim. So oh, a God. very Presents title. Nice. And nice. yes, <laughs> And as you might guess from the title, a baby is involved. So um, very different from Lawrence and Kitty's story, but it's one that I hope people will enjoy as well. Okay. And lastly, where can everyone follow you online? So all my uh, social media contact information is actually on my website, jadesolajames.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I have not succumbed to TikTok yet, although <laughs> <laughs> although I, I'm I'm sure that day will come. So, uh, but whatever I join, and um, it it'll all be on the website. So I usually just point out people there. Okay, awesome. Well, we will have that linked in the show notes. Thank you so so much for being here with us. This has mm-hmm. been such an honor, and we have just been counting down the days, and we're yes. so excited. I cannot wait to share this chat with everyone. So, listeners, make sure you check the show notes for all the places. We'll have the website. I'll do some digging on the website and have links to everywhere else, mm-hmm. um, yeah. as well as links to Harlequin and Mills and Boone, so that you can um, get your hands on what we have so far the Swedish charade and redeemed by his New York Cinderella and we are just so excited for everything else that you have up your sleeve to come out we cannot wait (laughs) thank you so much for having me I've had such a marvelous time chatting with both of you thank you and listeners Sarah and I will talk with you in our next episode have a lovely day everybody Mm